excited to be here with you guys this morning. This is a rare treat that I get to be up here and not um, putting out fires back there. Don't no, there's never any fires. It's every everything is good all the time. Nothing ever goes wrong back there, ever. Actually, one of my favorite stories. Should I tell this? Yes. Okay. Uh, is I got a call. We have like a radio system, you know, in case of emergencies and stuff. And um, there was <laughs> two of my favorite stories that have happened in the last year. So not recently, um, but one is um, Lucy. Can you come here? There's a diaper bag infested with ants, and they're biting the children. And um, I was like, what? <laughs> and sure enough, I go back there. We opened up this diaper bag, and there's just like hundreds of ants just invading the room. So it's always never a dull moment. The other one was, hey, Lucy, um, we've got a bloody nose. Um, this kid just threw a dinosaur at my face, and can, I need some gauze or something. It's like, wow, it's just spirited. Never a dull moment. So with that being said, um, we have just had an awesome time having kids ministry during first service only, but we would love to bring it back second service for real. Um, and the only thing that's keeping us from doing that is just having enough leaders to be able to staff the classroom so they are safe and or when ant infested diaper bags show up, we can have enough people to remedy that situation. Um, and so if you're looking for a way to get plugged in or just like, hey, kids aren't totally my thing, but I could do it for six months just to help out the church and start to serve our families who are coming second service and we don't have that option. Would you just fill that out on your connection card or come talk to me or if you're fancy, go on our website and fill out the form that cool people do. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a millennial, so I'm like narking on myself, but I still like paper sometimes or just like having a conversation. Um, but we're hoping to really start that back soon so we can offer kids ministry in both services, which will be wonderful. Um, thanks for showing up, being here, looking lovely, taking a shower. If you did, if you didn't, it's okay. It's right. You did within the last, you know, week. So that's all good. It's all good. Um, I get, if I haven't met you, I get to be the kids pastor and it's been super fun. Um, getting to do that. My background is in youth ministry and young adult ministry. So being in kids ministry has been like a really fun learning curve. Um, and I'm just grateful to be a part of honestly a really healthy church, really healthy culture. Um, and welcome if you're new here. So we are in a series called Church Is Blank. So each week we thought it was would be really clever if we had our titles be like the fill in the blank. Do you think that's cool, right? So first week was church is plan A and talking about how plan A, um, Jesus created us in community. I was even thinking about this on the drive-in this morning about how we are physically created in a community of two people by a communal God for a community. We can't live alone. In fact, they make TV series called Alone where it's entertainment to watch someone be alone for as long as they possibly can without breaking down emotionally and mentally. And usually they starve and then medical people have to come and evacuate them, say, hey, you can't go any further. And it's like, that's entertainment. So much so because it's so opposite of how we are created to be. We weren't created to be alone. Um, we were created to be in community. 
And we've been learning about how church is human, meaning God intentionally built his church on people, on humans who are imperfect, who are messy, who are frustrating, who smell bad, who don't make all the right decisions all the time. That was on purpose. And so today we are going to be talking about how church is enduring. Church is enduring. And so to go into our passage for today is um, the same thing happened. Lucy Brendel. Oh, that's what we were laughing about. Okay, yeah. I am not Lucy Brendel. Um, yikes. I'll just leave that right there. Uh, <laughs> so John chapter 15, you guys have probably read this passage multiple times if you've been a Christian a while or heard some sermons about it. Basically, the context for this is this is kind of Jesus' last sermon, his last words before he goes to be crucified then to rise again and then have some more last words again. But before he dies, this is his last sermon. This is like, hey, if you don't remember the last three years of ministry, hopefully you do, but I want to stick with this one thing. I'm leaving this for last. And so I want us to read this passage not as individuals, as in me and you, me and my own faith, my own walk with Jesus, but us collectively as a church. Because when I'm saying you, I'm not just saying one person, but I'm saying you as a community, as the ecclesia, as the calling out of believers, as a body of believers who have forsaken our old life and choose to follow Jesus. That's what we are getting instructions from today. So John 15, verse 1, it says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that does not produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. All right. Let me just pray really quick. Jesus, I just give you this morning... Um, I thank you that you're here, that you care about us, that you're active in our lives. We give you today as we learn how to remain in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we have this first verse. I am the true grapevine. This is Jesus talking. And my father is the gardener. In other versions, like the King James Version says husbandman. But that's confusing. Um, gardener, farmer, vine dresser. And so we have Jesus the vine, God as the gardener. And why is this important? Why would he compare us to this versus like some a zucchini plant where you just put a seed in the ground and you walk away and then miraculously you have these huge zucchinis that everyone just wants to eat one and then tries to give away all the rest and no one ever wants them. And then there's a free box outside of your house and they rot and... Or you make zucchini bread and it's never as good as it sounds in the recipe. <laughs> and then you bring it to the office and it doesn't get eaten. Okay, so why not zucchini? Why, why grapes? Why a vineyard? Why a grape vine? And I don't have like a lot of background in being a vintner. Um, having a process from the planting of the vine to the tending of it to the crushing of the grapes to the bottling and the fermenting process. 
um, to drinking wines and having all these like notes of cedar wood and worms and some sort of berry that's only found in South Africa and it's just like that's a that's a whole thing but anyways like why a vine and so I was reading about being a vintner being a winemaker and how vintners are so obsessed with the whole process because it's like a chef an executive chef being able to grow their own ingredients so they can control and observe and be aware of every single stage of the process and so when we compare God to being a vine dresser or a vintner, what we learn, what we can observe is that he is so intentional with the whole process. There's never anything that goes on in his church, in our lives, in the church of Jesus that he's not aware of, that he's not intentionally watching, that he doesn't have a plan for. And to me, that's so comforting that it's not just like a plant and walk away but to have a creative God involved in the entire process. And we also learn that God being a vintner is also him being concerned with the long-term vision of the church, of Jesus Christ, of his kingdom. Because what I learned is when you plant a vine, you actually don't see fruit for several years. In fact, the third year, they just let the fruit drop to the ground. On the fourth year, they'll actually harvest the fruit and make the first bottle of wine. But because of the crushing process, the fermenting, you're not actually enjoying that first bottle of wine eight years after you planted the vine. So it's a long-term process. Most people actually don't see a profit in winemaking till 10 or 15 years down the road. So it's like to start from scratch, you have to know long-term this is a plan and that there's not maybe going to be the best fruit all the time <laughs> or it won't be profitable for a while, and that's okay. And that speaks to his character, his heart for us. So we have God as the vintner, Jesus as the vine, the source, right, the source of life. We know that obviously vines can survive when branches are cut off, but branches cannot survive when it's cut off from the vine. And so that gets to us. We are the branches. We are the ones in scripture, when we remain connected to Jesus, fruit comes forth. And so if we turn to then verse 2, he says, right away, Jesus says, he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do produce fruit so that they will produce even more. So what I get from this is that you do produce fruit, you don't produce fruit. You're getting cut. You're going to be cut. You're, there is going to be some snipping that is happening. There is no way to avoid the pruning or the cutting away for the sake of the vine, for the sake of the vine. And um, we see this, you know, throughout history. Honestly, if we look back at the vine of the church, if we keep with that analogy, of the church of Jesus that he started when he ascended and gave these instructions to Peter and the Holy Spirit fell. We can see that like there's been things throughout history that have been needed to cut off, right? Like the Crusades, like let's bring up the Crusades. I mean, that was a horrible time for Christianity. Or if we look at Christendom where we start to entangle power, wealth, money, 
in the name of God, in politics. We have kings and queens going to war in the name of God, but really it was to raise taxes and to take back land and to kill and to pillage. And there was this entanglement. And any time we see in history this massive amount of power given to people in the name of Jesus, it's really hard for it not to become corrupt. And what can start as good, as a good, well-meaning intention, can then eventually not bear any fruit at all. He says he cuts off a branch that does not produce fruit. So that means the branch was connected to the vine at some point in time. It was growing. It started off good. It started off being remaining in the vine. And then eventually it needed to be trained, cut off, pruned. And, you know, I think, honestly, we're at another hinge point in history of a massive pruning in the church. And you might knock on millennials for deconstructing, um, but there's a reason. There's a reason. It's a calling back to remain in Jesus. See, what we've, I think, cultural Christianity, what we've done is we've sh shifted our perspective from fruit being from remaining in the vine to fruit being remaining in ourselves, our own agendas, our own schemes. And we see this fruit of power, wealth, money. Sound familiar? It's happened before. Of large stages, of jets, of massive retreat centers, of expensive vacations for six months in the Bahamas, for social media reels, I mean, you can, you've seen it probably in the headlines, unfortunately. And I think we're at a point in history where God is calling us back to the vine, to remaining in him, not remaining in our own plans, ideas, visions, what makes us money, what makes us sound good. And I've been a part of that. I've propagated that. I've wanted to be that. I have been that in some ways, in a small fraction or form where it was about me. And, you know, we see throughout history this, this deconstruction, this calling back to, hey, this does not line up with this. We see our, the fathers of our faith, some reformers like John Wycliffe, St. Francis of Assisi. We see Martin Luther. We see um, William Tyndale, who was translated the first Bible from Latin to English. I mean, amazing work. We wouldn't read scripture if it wasn't for him. Yet he was murdered because of it, for heresy. And so we have these people calling out people in history to come back, to remain, to remain into Jesus's church and the way that he views us, his people, his bride, his love, and it's interesting that a radical idea of one generation becomes common sense to the next. But it wasn't, it had to be people standing up and calling out and being willing to be pruned. And I think that's where our history is at now. And um, man, I just, I've been praying about this morning for weeks. And I honestly feel feel the one thing that I felt commissioned 
or impressed upon or, you know, that's too Holy Spirit for you. I just felt like a nudge to do is to, um, is to apologize and repent for the ways that our American evangelical culture has equated fruit with numbers, data, movements. It hasn't equated it. Success hasn't been the work of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. We've traded fruit of good works that Jesus talks about, healing the blind, setting the captive free. The reason he entered our world, setting the captive free, from both governmental oppression, from religious oppression, from oppression of sin and death. That's why he came. We've traded that for celebrity pastors, for sneakers that are $1,500 just to gain credibility. And I'm not saying those things in themselves are wrong. I'm just saying they can be easily corrupted. That we miss the main thing. That the point has then become the building, the program, the system, and it hasn't been about remaining in the vine of Jesus, of abiding, of creating home in him. He says, abide in me. Like you think about homesteaders who came out and pilgrims who came to Colorado even, to this new adventure. And when they found a plot of land where they wanted to build their house, they stayed there. You're not going to build a cabin for years and then decide, well, let's go build another one in the neighborhood across the street, right? You're staying there. You're rooted there. And it's hard for us as our uh, culture, um, as even living in Denver, it's hard to stay rooted. We're kind of transplants from everywhere. You know, the joke is like, if you find a real native, you found a diamond in the rough, right? Where it's like, no one's actually from here. We are just all transplanted here. And I want to call our church back to remain, to abide, to create a homestead, to build a lifelong home in Jesus. Not in our culture, not in what programs we can create, although those things can be good, but it's not the source of life. That is Jesus. And if one of the hallmarks of Christianity should be first and foremost repentance, so that we can be transformed. Man, I want to model for you. Um, I want to repent. As a church leader who's propagated those things and who has been in the crosshairs, who's felt used, overlooked. And maybe you felt that way. Maybe you felt betrayed. Maybe you felt like you were just a cog in a massive wheel. You didn't really matter except for what you could provide what services you could give to the church. Maybe you feel like the wrong people are staying in power and the right people are having to close their doors. Maybe it feels like, man, where's the justice, God? Where's the justice? And I... I don't know all the answers of why people stay in power when they shouldn't or why sometimes the wrong things become the big deal and the right things like character and integrity are totally overlooked in a leader. Um, 
But as a millennial, I want to be part of the solution to call the church back to remaining in Jesus. He's the one who can produce good fruit in our lives. He's the one who can still and is still, his hope is to redeem the world. To take what was dead and make it come alive again. In fact, in reading about vineyards, um, the girl who was walking through the vineyards and interviewing this vintner, she was like, is this thing even alive? It's to, like there's no green. It's to, it looks totally dead, like a dead branch. How is this thing going to produce massive tons of grapes within a few months? And the vintner said, oh, just wait. It looks dead now. But give it four weeks, and you'll see there's life in the vine. There's life in the vine. There's life in Jesus. There's life in abiding in him. And pruning is part of the process. You prune a plant because you care about it, because you love it, because you want it to produce more fruit, because you want it to be healthy. And in fact, there's a type of pruning that happens on grapevines. It's called girdling. And what happens is every year what they do, these vintners do, is if this is like the vine coming out of the ground, they score a piece all around the trunk of the vine. Um, and what happens is it makes the vine think that it's being cut down. And what it does is it sends these receptors to say, hey, we need to grow our roots deeper. We need to get more nourishment from the actual roots of this thing. So that way we don't just perish completely. And it sends the whole energy of the vine back into the roots. And what they've noticed happens when they do this, and so they start to do it year after year, is the fruit that comes forth after a painful pruning process is the fruit is 10 to 30% bigger and the sugar content of the actual grape is sweeter. It's intentional. It's not dead. It's actually very much alive. And man, I've felt such a massive pruning in my own heart, a pruning in this church, a pruning in the American evangelical movement as a whole. And if we have ears to hear, that pruning will bring forth sweeter fruit, not for our own glory, for our kids, for the next generation, for the lost who are looking at this whole Jesus thing and saying, it's not real. There's no way. I see the church. I see Christians. I see Jesus. The two don't match up. Philippians 2 talks about, man, take on Christ's mindset. He was humbled as a servant. He was a man of no reputation. It says, look out not for your interests, but for the interests of others. If I hold that scripture up with kind of the typical American church culture right now, there's not much familiarity. But there's hope. You're like, wow, this is kind of depressing. Jeez. <laughs> wow. Came to just feel like a, there's no hope for the church. And, you know, sometimes, to be honest, I, like, look at what's happening, even the headlines, the, like, Christian headlines from the last three years. There's some, been some major uncovering. 
of moral depravity, honestly, of spiritual abuse, of sexual abuse, of narcissism, of um, embezzlement, of propping up personalities, charisma, propping up churches, you know, putting forth theology that is so weak, and when you actually go through a trial, it doesn't hold up. There's no framework that Christians are supposed to suffer, that this life is supposed to be hard. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why our generation is deconstructing, is taking a step back and looking at the problem. And it's not just one or two people. In some ways, it's a very systemic issue, our culture. I'm not saying Jesus or the church as his body of believers, but as our American church culture, there's issues that need to be corrected, that need to be repented for publicly. And I want to call us. We are just 660 South Broadway, right? We are, are maybe like a blip on the radar or, or a coin in the bucket. But you know what? We have influence to stay together, to remain together, to choose to remain in Jesus and not in ourselves, our own intentions, motives, not in our personality. But we can choose together to remain in Jesus as a church so that we can bear much fruit. And it's like, well, what's the point? Where's the hope? Where's the hope? And Jesus actually goes on to talk about this in verse 9. He says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. And when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my Father's commandment and remain in his love. Jesus isn't calling us to remain in doctrine or personality. He's not calling us to remain in good preaching, in having pithy, rhyming things, or having a social media manager. He's not asking us to remain in those things. He's asking us to remain in his love. And I know we're all desperate for it. I am desperate to see the love of Jesus, desperate to see Christians love each other, and that's how, what, what we're known for. And he says, going on into verse 11, I have told you these things. So all the things he talks about, vine, branches, you're going to be pruned, remain in me, abide in me, make your home in me. Why? I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other the same way I've loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend. And you are my friends if you do what I command. So how do we remain in the vine? How do we remain connected to Jesus? How do we call back the church from remaining in fruit that doesn't last, that uses people? We do that by loving each other. And it feels so simple, but I really believe that on the other side of complexity is simplicity. When you go through a dark night of the soul, when everything's up in the air, you question everything, nothing is not on the table, and you come out the other side to see the light of Jesus, it becomes very clear that his love 
is actually very divine and not human-made. I can't produce good fruit on my own. It has to be the power of the Holy Spirit. And the pain and the pruning that I go through, it's not a punishment. It's not a cynical God poking and prodding me. It's his effort to train his vine to produce sweet fruit. So that not just his joy, his glory will be shown, but that my joy would overflow in seeing the goodness of God revealed. He's traded the title of slave. What maybe we thought we were a slave to our own sin, a slave to a system, a slave to a government, a slave to a hierarchy or a way of thinking or a belief system. And he says, no, you're not a slave. You're a friend. There's no hierarchy and I have the corner market on truth because I'm standing up here on a pulpit. You have discernment. You have the Holy Spirit. He gives you wisdom when you ask for it. Generously. God is so good that the God of the universe would call me a friend. Call you a friend. The last part of the verse says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Man, if that is an encouragement enough, I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. And this is my command, love each other. So, you know, where's the hope is in kind of wrapping up today? The hope is that first Jesus is still at work that this is his long-term vision, that we may only see a chapter or a verse or a, a generation of history, but he sees the whole vine from beginning to end, and it's good. The hope is that he is a tender, thoughtful, intentional gardener who is training us to become more like him, who sees the injustice and is cutting those things off, and who sees the potential in us in our pain in girdling down, rooting back down into him and finding life again and being pruned, that he's very active and aware of everything that's going on in his church. He hasn't forgotten about us. He, we're not throwaway people where we're so corrupt or our attentions, motives, actions look nothing like him. He's still standing at the door of our hearts knocking and saying, let me in. I specialize in impossible things. I specialize in redemption. I specialize in bringing out new life in dead spaces. That is who I am. And it's so good. It's so good. The hope is there. The hope is he's not finished yet. The vine, in some ways, in our generation might look dead, but it is very much alive. The hope that abiding, making our home, rooting down in Jesus is the point, and we get to be called back to that, and it's so healthy, and it's going to create sweet fruit for you to enjoy, not just pain and suffering and then you die, 
but sweet fruit that you will enjoy. You will see the goodness in the land of the living. You will taste and see. And man, many, maybe some of you have gone through that storm, that process of throwing everything up in the air and saying, what do I do with this? And I want to pray for you this morning. If you're in that process, if you're going through that process, kind of just like wanting to give up on the church, um, I want to pray for you. I want to repent. I want to say we haven't done it all right. But I know that this is the way that God is pruning us. And if we have ears to hear, that there's fruit, there's life on the other side. The hope for our church is that he is patient and kind. He's not done with us yet. In fact, there's great plans ahead. It's a long-term vision being compared to a grapevine. The hope is that he sees you. You are not overlooked. He's not done with you yet. He's not done with us yet as a body of believers. And that this thing is good. The deal is still on. God is still operating. There's pockets of love, of evangelism, of doing good things all over the city. Maybe we're not aware of it because it doesn't make the headlines. That doesn't mean it's not happening. It's happening in this church. It's happening in this room. You help each other move. You bring food when someone's sick. There's a new life. There's babies here. There's a village surrounding those babies, encouraging parents. Hey, what you're doing is holy work. That is the vine of Jesus growing. That is the fruit of Jesus being produced. So don't give up hope yet. Church is enduring, not because of who we are, but because of him, his plan, his purposes for us. And we're continuing to be made and trained to be more and more like him. Would you pray with me? God, I, I confess, I repent of ways that I've been so much about the ministry, about the things that we do, about the numbers, about the cool t-shirts. And I haven't been remaining in you. I've remained in my own ideas been remaining in the things that prop up my agendas. God, I want to remain in you. And in my own dark night of the soul, going through extreme church hurt, living in it, processing where to go, I come back to your scripture because that is what's true and stands the test of time. And what I know is that when we remain in you, our joy is made complete. When we remain in loving each other, we stay connected to you. And that you, God, are a good gardener who sees the beginning from the end and is trustworthy. So God, would you bless my friends as they go this week? 
Would you give them favor and influence in every area of their lives because they are the ones that you care so much for. That we get to come here and celebrate the work that you're doing. But the true work is being done outside these walls when we take care of one another, when we pray for each other over the phone, when we visit each other, when we do things together as your church, as we remain collectively in you. Give them the power and the hope to continue to do those things. In Jesus' name.